Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here today with the entire crew. We have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello. Our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Uh, so it's a funny period in the summer where there's not really a lot coming out right now that is uh, you know, likely to be awards contender. The Emmy nominations are already out. Dunkirk is in theaters. Uh, we can talk about the awards prospects of the Emoji movie. But you know no one I know has seen it, so it just seems unfair. But interestingly enough, there is like a lot of stuff on the horizon. So without a new release this week to kind of eye, uh, we're going to look ahead a little bit and then uh, talk about some broader topics in the news right now. But to start with, uh, Richard, you have seen two recent and sort of uh, close upcoming movies that seem pretty interesting, and you have reviews of both of them on VF.com now. Uh, So tell us about, I guess, Logan Lucky first and then Detroit. Yeah, Logan Lucky is the new movie from Steven Soderbergh, who had sworn he was done with feature yeah, film Yeah, I thought directing. he was not no. making movies anymore. Yeah, no, he He's is. Back. Yeah. No one ever <laughs> keeps those promises. Yeah, I'm no. just, it's like, it's not fair. It's just a fake way to get It's publicity. why when everyone was freaking out about Daniel Day-Lewis, it was like, all right, he said this before, right. like, this yeah. is probably, yeah. he'll be back. And Daniel something. Craig, by the way, is coming back as James Bond after right. saying, basically, he'd rather slit his wrist, so they're right. just cranky. <laughs> Creatives are cranky. If you're paid yeah. enough to pay James Bond, I, I think you just do it. And by the way, this is my last uh, episode on the podcast. <laughs> retiring (laughs) sorry to tell you (laughs) but yeah so he's back in making feature films and it's very familiar it's basically an oceans 11 story but set in sort of appalachia um west virginia and north carolina about a bunch of kind of uh you know ne'er do well sort of hickish people who rob a nascar event because there's a ton of cash that flows through these things and so it's all about them rigging up the heist and it's got an all-star cast you know channing tatum adam driver katie holmes is in it uh hillary swank is in it it's just a ton of people kind it's of similar so, to oceans it, 11 it's so the casting is so amazing it's like t- for a hick movie like a oh, hick yeah. heist movie yeah that is great casting like hillary swank just bring back the police don't cry <laughs> hillary swank yeah. Uh, or Adam a million Driver. dollar baby for that matter yeah exactly and aren't they both uh, they're supposed to be Iraq war veterans Adam Driver and Adam Channing Dr- Adam Driver is yeah oh, okay. he, isn't Channing too or no no okay. he's kind of like the screw up brother and Adam Driver okay. is like the one who was good but then like lost a limb in the war and Adam Driver really did go fight in Iraq didn't he or he almost did mind? he injured himself before he deployed okay thank you um, it's a fun movie uh, you know while it's heavy on star power and obviously Soderbergh is like allotted Oscar winning director this is not this is a late summer kind of fun thing that I enjoyed. I think that there could be some itchiness with the way these wealthy Hollywood actors depict poorer Southern-ish people, especially given the fact that we have between Catherine Waterston, who's in the movie, Riley Keough, who's in the movie, and Jack Quaid, the son of Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan, we have three celebrity scions who are playing these sort of Southern twanged <sighs> hickey characters, and it's like, Ugh. yeah, but Riley Keough, really so good. Grandfather is Elvis, right? Right. So I mean, he's the king of the hicks. Yeah, true. That's true. <laughs> that that is a good point. And she's wonderful in the movie, as she yeah. is in most things. She kind of does walk off with her scenes. She plays their sister, um, Channing Tatum, and now her sister. Yeah. So it's a fun movie. It's a nice respite from other kind of popcorn fair this summer that's all things blowing up and whatnot. This is, it's, it's a very sort of lo fi kind of heist movie. Um, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I had reported to me that at one point, I think they call themselves 
Ocean Seven Eleven or something like that, right? Like, yeah, exactly. So you're, you know, I was watching the movie. I saw it actually kind of a while ago, and I was I was watching it and started like writing, you know, either headlines in my head or review sentences in my head, and I was like, oh, like you know, make the kind of Ocean Eleven comparison. Like that's an easy layup, and then they do it for you in the movie. So, yeah. so it's a weird world where they acknowledge that Ocean's Eleven exists. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's a fun time. What do you feel like this is as a Soderbergh comeback? Like, does it surprise you that this is the way he chose to come back? But is it more like he's the guy who most recently made Magic Mike? Of course, it happened this way. Yeah, I mean, I think the same with Quentin Tarantino in a way where I long for Quentin Tarantino to make a movie that has some thought and not thought, but heft behind it, some sort of, you know, emotional register to it. But, you know, if he wants to make the movies he wants to make, then that's his prerogative. Same with Soderbergh. Soderbergh has made, I mean, I think Traffic is probably his most you know, intensely serious movie. But, you know, I think that he just kind of wants to make these fun movies between, uh, you know, Side Effects was his supposed to be his last feature film. And that's this really fun kind of dark thriller with Rooney Mara and Channing Tatum. Um, he did Behind the Candelabra for HBO, which has some pathos to it, certainly. But yeah, he's back with this. And uh, while I might have hoped for something with a bit more weight to it, a bit more scale, he's really good at doing this kind of thing. And so why the heck not if he wants to do it? Can I ask you one last question? Since you, like me, care a lot about accent work, Mm. I have had some question marks about what Daniel Craig is doing in the trailers. <laughs> Does it work overall, his his thing? Um, I mean, yes and no. I mean, he's good in the movie. His character is kind of fun. He plays this um, convict named Joe Bang, who they need to get out of prison to help them with the heist and then get back into prison so they don't know that he escaped for a day. It's a really fun setup, the way they do that. Uh, so his character's fun, but you know, in the way that some British actors can actually really do a Southern accent well, because it's closer to a British accent than, you know, a sort of mid-Atlantic American accent is, he struggles with it a little bit, yeah. But it's not so bad that it's distracting. I mean, there have been worse Southern accents from actual Americans, so I guess we can't uh, get on this case too much. That's absolutely true. Uh, But Richard, if you're looking for something uh, weighty and meaningful, I hear uh, Catherine Bigelow has a new movie too. She does. (laughs) So this is her follow-up to Zero Dark Thirty. Same screenwriter, Mark Bowl. It's called Detroit. Largely, it's about the Detroit riots, but in a more specific sense, it's about an incident that happened at the Algiers Motel 50 years ago on Tuesday, it was the 25th, where three black young men were shot and killed in a sort of police raid situation that, depending on who you believe, and, you know, I sort of tend to err on the side of believing the victims rather, or the people subject to it rather than the, the corrupt police force, it was a real sort of horror movie kind of execution style situation. So she depicts that in this movie, Bigelow does, with sort of an unflinching eye. And it just goes and goes and goes. And it's sort of a horror movie for the second act, mostly. And then the third act, it, they kind of go into the justice aspect of it or the lack of justice. And then it sort of ends on this not at all hopeful note, but a sort of grace note of really humanity that's, I think, kind of rare for Bigelow. So yeah, it's pretty powerful, but I think it will not be without its fair share of controversy. I mean, obviously, you are a white person, you're not maybe the best to weigh in on this. But like, how do you think it's going to fare with the why are white people telling this story question? Well, you know, I did something that I hope it was transparent enough in my review where I just sort of asked that question at the end. And I was like, the honest answer is, I don't know. It will take a lot more people talking about this movie, seeing this movie to really sort of figure this out. I think they do a good job with the material. I think that it's treated seriously. And I think they give 
focus to the right stories within or smaller stories within this larger narrative but what would the film look like if it was made by a black director if it was written by a black writer might there have been certain sensitivities certain nuances i think there certainly would be but this is not a story that had yet been told and so i think it's a good thing that it is being told and you know bigelow while she may have her flaws especially in terms of the way that zero dark 30 handled torture she is a she is a thoughtful thorough director and i think that she handles the story with a sort of the, the right amount of soberness. It's not a lot of editorializing. It's just, you know, until the end, sort of, she's just saying this is what happened and this, or the way, what we believe happened. And so if you're going to have a white director do it, I think that you could do certainly a lot worse than her. Is it just a nightmare to yeah, watch? It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's really like I sat next to a fellow critic, friend of the podcast, David Sims, and he had just like his hands like on his face, just like in sort of yeah. shock for, for a good hour of the movie, as did yeah. I. So it's not like a fun August, you know, thing. I don't really understand why it's coming out when it is. Maybe the fall yeah. just seemed too crowded. But I think it is, depending on how people re- it's received, the reviews were mixed, I would say, positive to mix. It could be in sort of awards contention for various things um there are actors picture um yeah maybe i mean depending on how what the response is i mean because it's coming at a pretty urgent time you know Um, i mean certainly yeah it's relevant to a mm -hmm. lot of big debates happening right now yeah and and acting award uh, nominees well yeah i mean there are a lot of good john boyega is in it and has he's great he doesn't he's sort of playing this pretty even keel he just wants to follow the rules kind of characters to keep his head down and so he's great. And there's this guy, somewhat new girl named Algie Smith who plays an aspiring singer who is part of a real life group called The Dramatics that had a few hits out of Motown um, in the 60s and or 70s. And so he plays this young guy who gets tangled up in this and he's really good and he sings and he emotes and it's a really strong performance from someone who I don't know that I'd seen in anything before. Algie Smith is his name. So great performances. Uh, Will Poulter, who's this British actor who you've seen in Where the Millers and various other things, he plays this villainous cop who is sort of a composite character, I think, or at least they changed his name um, because again, these cops got off for this and mm-hmm. so they couldn't quite name them out right mm-hmm. anyway he plays this villain and it's a really effective villain performance even though you really hate him he was supposed to play the clown in the new it movie do you think this is a scarier role yeah i mean yeah because it's it's well it's 90 percent real 95 yeah. percent real so yeah i mean it doesn't feel cartoonish in terms of its villainy really it, it might if you didn't know it was a real story but if if you if you go in knowing that it's it's mostly just I'm scary. Not having seen either of these movies, yeah. I just personally wish like Mark Bowl and Catherine Bigelow would make an Appalachian problematic heist movie, you know, yeah. once in a while, just to kind of like <laughs> let some of the air out of the room and yeah. loosen up their joints. But hey, okay. Well, Catherine Bigelow also, you know, uh, has directed some great action movies like you know, yeah. Point Break. And it's just, I think it's great that this story is being brought to a major feature film. I, I think it, it bears telling. But in a similar way we talked about last week with the Benioff and Weiss show about an alternate America where slavery still exists. It's like, okay, well, but why you? Like, what, you know, why is this what you wanted to do? And there are moments in Detroit where there's a little bit of a hint of like, there's a kind of prurient quality to it where it's like, okay, are we just doing a thriller horror movie? I mean, this is about something serious and real. And maybe a black director and a writer would have treated it with a little bit less. It's not titillating exactly, but it borders on it sometimes. Or had permission to not be so serious about it either i don't know but i think these questions are all kind of why at the end i was sort of 
when writing about the movie was forced to say I don't know and I think that yeah. like mm-hmm. what I'm really interested in and maybe it's a cop out when writing a review but what I'm really interested in is to hear what other people think about it you know yeah. I can say my little piece about it but I'll be very eagerly reading you know the conversation and following it because I could tell just for when the reviews came out just like searching Twitter for just the phrase you know Detroit reviews there are a lot of people who are really anticipating this movie um, a lot of them are black and they were expressing you know ex- excitement or disappointment yeah. and so obviously this is a movie that means a lot to a lot of people and I'm really curious to hear what they have to say about it versus me, you know, seeing the movie at 10 a.m. on a Friday morning and for a work assignment. You know, it's a different yeah. experience. So. That sounds, that's a good takeaway, I think. I mean, without like the, uh, an audience really having seen it, it's kind of hard to say what the lasting impact is going to be. But it feels to me like opening this in August is kind of a way to keep it away from some of the scrutiny that Zero Dark Thirty got. Like if it opens not in a typical awards window, it's going to be treated a little bit differently. Like maybe they don't want it to be around for eight months to have people tear it apart the way they did Zero Dark Thirty. Or do you see it hanging in there? It really depends. I think that, you know, this August release slot you know where it's you know with the help slot or whatever i mean this is so far from the help it's not even funny but like you know this sort of late summer release that could hold on until oscars which some movies have but some movies certainly haven't it's tricky to say i think that it could resurface later in the season if it's handled the right way i gotta say it's been a a kind of grim summer at the movies i miss like the ricky and the flash and the help and even the butler like when can we get like our august oscar movies to be like a little fun? or florence foster jenkins or something oh my yeah. god yeah. what a wonderful time yeah. that was but then again the blockbusters have been pretty great surprisingly great and fun but grim so. i mean i think we talked about this last week that wonder woman you know you have the front in world war one and you've got war for the planet of the apes and i guess spider-man spider-man homecoming man yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh not one of the blockbusters that i think we'll see again in oscar season but uh but probably not. Well, that's like not a bad transition to Dunkirk. Yeah. Speaking of serious, serious movies. Yeah. So, Mike, you weren't with us to talk about Dunkirk last week. Have you seen it? Yeah, I watched it last night. Uh, what'd you think? Well, I'm glad that Bane got to fly a plane. I think that was really good of them. <laughs> Didn't he crash a plane in The Dark Knight Rises? Wasn't that the opening of that movie? <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm just <laughs> like parachutes out of uh, crashing. Is plane, it Nolan yeah. or is it Hardy? That's like no. I think like a mask and a weird voice would be really great for all <laughs> roles that we collaborate on. He has such a lovely voice too. Like I his don't... normal speaking voice is so charming that it's weird that you just can never well, hear. And it. the it two guys, without movies. spoiling anything, the two guys, two pilots are on the radio, and one of them you can hear his voice perfectly. And then anytime Tom Hardy speaks, it's like. <laughs> it's weird. Over and out. It was like, what is happening? Here? I want to eat some crow about what I said last week uh, when Richard was talking about Dunkirk and I thought it would do really well at the box office and Valerian was going to crash and burn. And I was like, I don't know. People are excited about Valerian. Uh, but of course, Richard was right. I saw Valerian. I understand why people didn't go see it now. It's beautiful, but like the plot is just abysmal. But I just wanted to be forthright with how wrong i was and we have accountability on, on this podcast <laughs> uh, thank you for that for coming clean but but um <laughs> no i think that it's uh certainly an experience it's intense there's a lot of time i'm glad i had gone to the beach before watching the movie rather than after <laughs> and uh I, but i don't know it's an interesting thing we you know we were emailing before the show about the kind of the serious capital serious capital war capital movies at the oscars it's been a while i guess Catherine bigelow's the last one who won best picture full on with yeah. um with the hurt locker I mean, this thing feels like it could definitely be a Best Picture nominee, and Nolan's obviously been nominated before. 
I guess it resonates with our time in terms of like, wow, what a healthy, in some way, society dealing in a healthy way with an incredible setback versus our incredibly pathetic, narcissistic society that's imploding even though everything is great for our people. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's going to be the big resonant takeaway. But I don't know. I feel like you need to like ride something. If you're going to win Best Picture, you got to be riding something with a movie like this. Well, there's only about five minutes, if that, at the very end of the movie that's, that, that one could call sentimental. And I think that even a movie as brutal and annihilating as Hacksaw Ridge had, you know, the first half is this kind of like do, you know, sort of like righteous, like conscientious objector story. And then the last part of Hacksaw Ridge is like, you know, Jesus kind of stuff like that. Right. D- Dunkirk does not allow for that kind of sentiment to seep in really. And so I wonder if it will have the emotional pull that, you know, your sort of typical voter is looking for. That's true. Um, yeah, it's not it's, it's not a heart stringer at all. Really. I think that it's intellectually stirring and you sort yeah. of I, I was moved by it, but I wasn't like Well do you think carried he's away. banking on you're in so much you're so like anxious the entire time that that payoff maybe is more but i don't know i mean i was, yeah, I, I was a little emotional but yeah that reminds me of uh captain phillips which i thought was really powerful at the end there where yes you kind of are so tense the entire time and then tom hanks kind of breaks down and you just feel this rush of emotion with him but i uh, remember tom hanks didn't get nominated for best actor for that so oh uh weird <laughs> things happen and yeah, and that really did like get to me in a way that the ending of this, I, I wouldn't it, like I, it was yeah. moving, but it wasn't like that moment. That moment's yeah. like you just fall apart watching Tom Hanks in that moment. I mean, it's funny if you look back, Bridge of Spies lost to Spotlight two years ago. American Sniper lost to Birdman, which is still sort of bizarre. Uh, Zero Dark Thirty lost to Argo, which is also a war movie, but doesn't have that kind of high seriousness. Yeah, that's sort of more of an espionage kind of thing. Right. War Horse lost to The Artist. Again, sort of okay. And in 1998, maybe the weirdest one of all, Saving Private Ryan and The Thin Red... Well, Saving Private Ryan. uh, The Thin Red Line, which is a great movie, but but maybe more like this one, right? Mm -hmm. Like, just so kind of intellectual and not pulling the heartstrings. But they both lost to Shakespeare in Love, which was sort of like Harvey's original sort of coup pull out the thing that nobody could believe so i don't know but on the other hand the hurt locker won in 2009 you have schindler's list platoon the deer hunter Patton, lawrence of arabia the bridge in the river Kwai. but i don't know you know a lot of those are they have humor they have a lot of kind of character work this thing has there's character work but it's there's not like funny set pieces or anything like that it's all well there's 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 the musical number but that but you know <laughs> and Harry Styles is kind of like, is this a spoiler to say he's kind of a jerk? Can I say that? No, I don't think that's a spoiler. Okay. But is he good at being a jerk? Yeah. Uh, he's very good. Yeah. I mean, no one really gets a ton of like opportunity to act, the like, capital yeah. A act. It's very, it's very hurried and sort of over. The sound but, designer yeah. basically is the star of the uh-huh. movie and yeah. the uh, cinematographer. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is something I talked about last week too, but like, I wonder if the Britishness of the story, I mean, it's very British. I wonder if that is any impediment to doing well i mean it'll, it'll probably do well to baftas for sure but you know yeah. um mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of war movies that have been honored at the oscars you know over the years and there have been many are american stories and i wonder what that means for dunkirk though 
well-reviewed and well-received as it has been. When I got out of Dunkirk, I uh, tweeted something along the lines of, like, it just felt so patriotic. It, like, you know, made me want to be British, basically. And mm-hmm. uh, Guy Lodge, who's a critic and a uh, friend of some of ours, uh, basically said he hadn't heard from anyone in Britain that they had felt especially patriotic watching it, and possibly because Brexit has soured the national mood mm-hmm. among liberals there the same way it has here. Um, so that was kind of an interesting idea that, like, if you're British, you might not be stirred in the same way because it's tough times there. Like, I, I think if I saw... You know, I mean, when we saw Hacksaw Ridge this time last year, it was kind of overwhelming in the same way. So I don't know, maybe that e- that won't even be the same poll that it would be. But it made me want to like wave a Union Jack and, uh, you know, pledge allegiance to the Queen. I mean, it <laughs> should be, it, you could almost call this movie Stiff Upper Lip. You know, oh, really, absolutely. It's just, <laughs> that's basically the deal. I love it. Mark Rylance is so great in everything. I mean, yeah. he does get some room to move. To Mark move. Rylance is now like the symbol of decency for you know. If you if you want that in a movie, you just bring him in and he's yeah, in, 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 in quiet decency. And, <laughs> right. Yeah. I feel yeah. softly, fine yeah. about that. Like that is that is our society moving in a good direction for once. Same. Um, I do want to give poor poor Luke Besson and Valerian my bad movie decision one silver lining which is to say i could see it be in the oscar race for visual effects mm-hmm. it is a visually dazzling film and it's possible that like everyone will want to forget that it ever happened but you know if they want to throw him a bone it's like a beautiful world incredibly rendered it just has nothing to shore it up and so there was one other i agree with you joanna completely um it looks amazing um and i wish i want people to see it because it's worth seeing but another sort of mini oscar whispery narrative that came out of this past weekend was a number two hit a big hit was girls trip with tiffany haddish who is plays the kind of you know if we have to make the comparison like she's sort of like the melissa mccarthy in bridesmaids of girls trip right and she's wonderful in it, and it's a real breakout performance. She's been in things before, but this is her first really big feature role. And just, you know, a sort of anecdotal survey of Twitter for, like, Tiffany Haddish Oscar, that, like, that sort of at least groundswell grassroots campaign is already in the works. We've talked extensively about, like, how comedy never has has a really hard time getting in the Oscars. Although supporting actor, that's where it tends to be, yeah. if, it, if it is anywhere. So anyway, that could be interesting. I like that campaign. I think she's great in it. Um, she had a wonderful couch interview on Jimmy Kimmel Live last week, yeah. where she told this wonderful story about going on a swamp tour with Jada Smith and Will Smith that's hysterical, and everyone should watch it if they haven't. She also has a really great interview on The Breakfast Club, the radio show, where she reveals a lot about her fascinating and troubled past. Anyway, she's just And a this, good one with our own Johanna Desta. And our, on, with our own uh, Johanna Desta. That's on, exactly right. Yeah. The Hollywood section. Um, yeah, well, it would be interesting if what we ended up from this weekend was really Mark Rylance in supporting actor and Tiffany Haddish in supporting actress. That would be fine. I would happily endorse that, yeah. And then we can get them in a movie together? <laughs> it's there too bad go. that NBC canceled Carmichael show just weeks ago, I think, yeah. which was, you know, she was on and she was great on and that was a great sh- a great struggling show. And now her star is rapidly on the rise. I mean, it'll free her up to do more things, but that show could have used her like her shine that she's getting off of this, you know? So. Well, Mike and Molly stayed on the air forever after Melissa McCarthy got an Oscar nomination, and I don't think it did anybody <laughs> any good, so maybe she's... Uh, but Mike and Molly's a, not a good show, and yeah. Chronicle Show was a great show. True. So, you know. Yeah, I think that'll be a fun thing to take. You know, while we're focused on Detroit and Dunkirk as kind of the more obvious Oscar contenders, having a, a, a Tiffany Haddish uh, campaign to start up, why not? I still want Get Out to not be forgotten too. I think. Yeah. I think. I don't think it will. I think to. they're I don't gonna. Think it's in danger of that. I think it's yeah. going to be like the Stranger Things of uh, where you kind of think like that's way too early, but it'll but, stick. It'll yeah. stick around. A friend of mine suggested that they'll re-release it in theaters around uh, Halloween. It's like a horror movie effort, and then have that also be its FYC campaign. That's it a good idea. Smart to me. 
Well, while we've been recording this episode, uh, the Toronto Film Festival has announced its first wave of programming for this year's festival, which we'll uh, be covering once again. And as usual, there is a huge, amazing list of exciting fall movies on there. So, uh, uh, Richard, what's sticking out to you? Oh, boy, so much. I mean, as ever, Toronto is a jam-packed festival. But, uh, and a couple of these I already knew about because... I don't know. I had a little bird tell me, you're but fancy. yeah, uh, no, because I wrote a little thing for the um, upcoming issue of the magazine. Um, so I had to get a little preview for that. A couple things I'm really excited about mother, the Darren Aronofsky movie with Jennifer Lawrence. I'm really excited for three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, which is the movie with um, Francis McDormand written and directed by Martin McDonough, who did in Bruges and uh, seven psychopaths, a very underrated movie, George Clooney's next directorial efforts, Suburbicon, Guillermo del Toro's the shape of water, there was one other... Oh, I'm really excited for other people to see Call Me By Your Name and to see how that movie's sort of Oscar chances start to take shape when more people see it in Toronto, uh, a movie I loved at a Sundance and I think a lot of other people will fall in love with. But that's just a, a, a minor sampling. There's so much more. So Greta Gerwig and Andy Serkis are directors now? Yeah. and That's cool. And we got an Alexander Payne here, Downsizing. Yeah. I'm, I'm like really distressed that we've gone this far without mentioning I, Tanya, Thank you. Margot Robbie as Thank Tanya you. Harding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we're going to relitigate all the scandals of the 90s, uh, I, Tanya, I feel like it has to be made and I'm really yes. excited about it. I also just want to shout out um, The Darkest Hour, the Joe Wright movie about Winston Churchill, which released a pretty dreadful looking trailer a little while ago, but I stand for Joe Wright in all things and I'm holding out hope for it. Could be big for Gary Oldman. Yes. I mean, I think if nothing else, Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill is going to be amazing. I think Ben Mendelsohn's playing King George the uh, fifth, yeah. whichever one Colin Firth played in the King's wow. Speech. That's right. Uh, Who's so yeah, now great been... cast. I think you mean Jared Harris played in The Crown. <laughs> Thank you very much. He's been played by so many different actors at this point, uh, just yeah, in the past really 10 has. years. Something I wrote about in this little piece that's going to be in the magazine was Stronger, the David Gordon Green movie about not specifically about the bombing itself, but sort of the aftermath of the Marathon Boston bombing based on a true story about a guy who lost his legs and, you know, sort of his overcoming of that with Jake Gyllenhaal and Tatiana Maslany. Normally, this might seem like a sort of schmaltzy, you know, whatever kind of movie that doesn't catch the attention of awards voters. But, you know, David Gordon Green is a really interesting, talented director. Hall has been scratching at that Oscar door for a long time. And maybe maybe this could be it. Maybe Tatiana Maslany could be something. So I think it's interesting that that was one of the movies that the people at TIFF decided to share with me when I was writing this article. Um, so... So yeah, I'm I'm curious about that. Mudbound and, is we're, Mudbound. They're, they're not going to give up on Mudbound. No, we'll see where that Dee goes. Reese, who I inter- interviewed uh, at a screening recently, I want her to come on the show. She is so cool. Yeah, and that's a, another intense film, but good. Yeah, and a movie that I'm 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 rooting for. I, I think a lot of people are rooting for. Uh, oh, you know what? I just uh, found on the list is uh, it's listed as untitled Brian Cranston Kevin Hart film, but I believe that's a remake of the French film uh, Intouchables. Yes, you are right. Oh, which was a huge, <laughs> huge hit. Ew. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a pretty Lord. sentimental uh, movie. I yeah, I'm not really sure what to expect from it, but the combination of Kevin Hart and uh, Brian Cranston at a TIFF gala is fascinating. That's your yeah. the butler of this year. <laughs> um, <laughs> And we would be remiss not to mention that the Queen herself, Angelina Jolie, has a movie there that she directed called First They Killed My Father about the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia that is based on a true story, I think, but I think it is a scripted film and it's not a documentary. So she's always, you know, always interesting to see what she does. Um, But yeah, it's exciting. I mean, we're now... It's kind of it's crazy that it's we're now at this like fall movie season almost again, but <laughs> we'll have so much to talk about. That's right. Weren't we just talking about the light between oceans and floors, Foster Jenkins on the show? <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, and shout out to Maggie Betts, whom I know personally through friends with Novitiate in there. That's great. And Novitiate's one we really should keep an eye on because Melissa Leo has a crazy good performance in that as this like really hectoring mother superior that's, an I think, an absolute supporting actress contender there is one scene where she's lying prostrate on an altar screaming at the heavens that is really magnificent this conversation is more prepped than i usually do before until i'm like actually on the plane to toronto so thank you guys <laughs> yeah. for this. this is very helpful uh yeah and richard you'll be at toronto as well as at the telegraph film festival which happens a few days before toronto and presumably will feature a lot of these titles but they don't announce their lineup until a few but days before, i already so might know a few the suspense continues mm-hmm. <laughs> So Comic-Con was over the weekend. Uh, Joanna, you did some really heroic coverage for it for VF.com. There was a lot going on um, and, you know, probably a lot of big upcoming things that we could talk about. But the narrative that I kind of found the most interesting to watch was what happened after this Hollywood Reporter article broke on Friday saying that Warner Brothers was considering getting rid of Ben Affleck as Batman and he might not even play him in the standalone movie that uh, Matt Reeves is directing. And then Ben Affleck had to go to Comic-Con and sit in front of thousands of people and say, I love being Batman. Everything is doing just fine here. Do any of us believe that he is going to stick around? Like, doesn't it kind of seem like the writing's on the wall for him and he now just has to make a graceful exit after Justice League? Well, so he's contracted for three movies, right? I believe. And so that would be Batman v Superman and the two Justice League movies. And then his contract would be done. I think the most popular theory is that, you know, there there are some Batman stories where the Bruce Wayne version of Batman actually becomes more of like an advisor figure to a younger Batman character who takes up the mantle. And so the common thought among those comic book nerds is that Affleck will move into that. And so he would sort of cameo or something like that, which is a more graceful way to leave than just to shove him out. The otter sub narrative of this is the whole Ben Affleck too old to play Batman question, which I thought was kind of weird and mean spirited that came out of all of that. I mean, maybe it's true. Ooh, the, are the line in the Hollywood Reporter was like, his body isn't exactly a temple. Yeah. It's just like, okay, yeah. what did you eat lately? It's pretty rough. So yeah, I don't know. I, I would be interested in seeing something like a like a Batman Beyond storyline only because it would be something different. Like this Justice League thing. The thing about the Marvel movies is, you know, for all their repetitiveness, they're bringing up a bunch of characters that we've never seen on the screen, like Ant-Man or what have you, you know. Um, whereas with Justice League, the Batman Superman retread is just like, it's so boring in my mind. And so if we have someone as talented as Matt Reeves making a Batman movie, I would love for that to be something very different from anything we've seen from Nolan or Burton before him or Schumacher. You know, to make it a non-Bruce Wayne Batman, I think would be very interesting. But I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there's like how much indignity is attached to Affleck being removed as director, being like his script being thrown out, like all of that stuff that's happening. I couldn't tell watching him at Comic-Con whether or not he was personally wounded by all these things that were going on or what. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to really read into it. Like, I feel like him being removed as director also could have easily just been him kind of deciding it wasn't worth his time. But like Mike and Richard, when you look at Ben Affleck and, you know, regardless of what you think about Justice League movies, like it, it feels weird to have a giant star who was this Oscar darling five years ago wind up here, doesn't it? It didn't seem like it was going to work out this way for Ben Affleck. Well, I mean, he's had such a strange kind of topsy-turvy roller coaster career, hasn't he? I mean, he's had he had like two big peaks of his career early and then sort of post Argo or, or surrounding that, you know, the town and gone baby gone. I'm sort of used to this narrative with him where he's up and then he's down and he's kind of in a trough right now. But is he really? Because I mean, nothing really has happened yet. 
you know this has all been speculation the, his turn as batman was fine and the movie did well enough and you know all this so in kind of a broader narrative about ben affleck's career it's not that surprising what is surprising to me is that if you believe the rumors that Warner Brothers and DC would be so willing to try to change ships midstream like this when they're really just starting to build this whole thing out. You know, it's not like it's five years down the road. I mean, nothing's ever easy for Ben Affleck, right? Even like his Oscar <laughs> is for what it's for best picture, but he was blanked out of best director. I can't right. remember anymore, yeah. but it's yeah. like, it's not for acting. Yeah. That was the year where he was kind of snubbed and then won the whole thing. Yeah, he wasn't even nominated. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I've seen this guy on a couple of Oscar nights and it's always like, you know, you see the F he wears the effort on his sleeve mm-hmm. at all times, you know? So, but it is interesting because we, we, t- people talk a lot about female Oscar winners and how that can be almost like a trap where they're afraid to take, sort of a lower brow role and then high brow roles don't materialize and you end up with no career. You kind of like disappear. Uh, does it function quite the same way for men? I'm not sure. Clearly in this case, it wasn't, you know, Ben's always got some angle he's working and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I think I, it, what's funny to me is that he cares a lot about this stuff. He's not yeah. like, this is not a guy who's like, wait, you know, checking out a few scripts and like letting his agent tell him what to do i mean he's really working all day trying to figure out how to like get to the next level yeah and i think that also that something that that has sort of plagued him since he's he, he sort of first burst on the scene 20 years ago was when he became famous as an actor it didn't take very long until he sort of veered into these like bad vanity projects not that he was making them but like that he was playing these sort of like cool hero guys you know who, who he, when he was sort of maybe more of a character actor i don't know but then even with his directing where his most recent film live by night i mean if you've not many people saw that movie but if you do i mean it is this really crazy vanity project where it really only took one film after argo for him to go a little bit overboard with the sort of self mythologizing you know and yeah. that's an impulse that many actors and many directors have it's not just a knock on him it's it's sort of a problem that creative people have but right. he just whereas it was starting with goodwill hunting and then the town it's like the guy you were like wow he can do it and yeah. it's like mm, yeah. yeah well i was gonna bring up live by night because i really feel like we can't discount how much of that is involved in this batman narrative because the story coming out of batman v superman dawn of justice was like this is a shit show but everyone was like but Ben Affleck's Batman was good, and it seemed like the future of the Justice League was pinned on the idea that Ben Affleck's Batman is good, and he's going to get his own movie, and we're going to put him in, you know... He, and he was going to direct He's going like to direct he, a it. A talented director was going to direct himself as Batman. Yeah, like, this is going to be a whole thing, and nothing in... I mean, he was in Suicide Squad, but barely, so that didn't really, like, ding him at all, but, like, there hasn't been a subsequent bad Batman performance for him, so I really feel like this narrative has shifted because of, you know, because Live by Night was also a Warner Brothers movie, and so, like, whatever badness happened with that, I feel like that has to be involved in all of this. And then, of course, the other thing that happened, like, if they pivot the franchise to pin it more on Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman, that makes good business sense to me. I don't know if they'll do that. Uh, They've already pivoted the marketing for Justice League to be more about her, but, like, since she's so beloved by fans critically supported and made a crap ton of money with her standalone film, it would make sense that she would sort of 
enter the center of the spotlight there. So, Joanna, do you think Warner Brothers is responding to like market research about the audience just being like, eh, we're kind of met on Ben Affleck at best? Or do you think it's literally just like, oh, he made a different movie and it bombed. So even though Argo was Best Picture winner and a huge hit, we don't care anymore. Or not, we don't care. It bombed and we don't care. We don't know the whole story of like what happened with that movie. But, you know, if Richard's perception is, is accurate that it's sort of a crazy vanity project, maybe they're like, we don't trust him with this franchise that's already shaky. Like we, we don't trust what Ben Affleck is going to do given the last thing that he did for us, despite Argo or the town. And so we're going to give it to Matt Reeves, who's got this more solid track record of blockbusters over here. And like maybe, never mind, I'm fanficking at that point. I'm like, maybe Ben Affleck got mad about that. So they're like, fine, you won't be our Batman at all. Like, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but this, you know. This would make a good Ryan well, Murphy and Affleck series. is the only. <laughs> He is the only established celebrity currently in this Justice League universe. And we've talked about how at Marvel, they kind of find new young actors for cheap. They turn Chris's into movie stars. They started with Robert Downey Jr. He's kind of the linchpin of the franchise. And it seems like Ben Affleck was going to go that way too. But the way that these franchises are moving is that you hire young talent who doesn't cost anything. And it's possible that like Ben Affleck is just expensive to be in this role. And like maybe they would rather just you know, find a 25-year-old who doesn't cost anything. To play Nightwing. I'd I'd watch it. I really do want Matt Reeves to make a Batman Beyond movie with cameos from Ben Affleck, so it's not super awkward. Only mildly awkward. Actually, but then Ben Affleck would have to go on that publicity tour, so maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) It's also worth saying that Justice League is kind of a mess for reasons that have nothing to do with Ben Affleck and kind of nothing to do with anyone. Like, it just seems cursed in some odd way. Like, it was, uh, you know, coming off of Batman vs. Superman, it was having a hard time, and then Zack Snyder walked away for personal reasons, so now Joss Whedon's finishing it, and there was a report yesterday about how they're having, like, $25 million worth of reshoots, which isn't unheard of, but is a lot of reshoots. Uh, so I don't know. They're like not things just don't seem to be lining well, from up. From the us. from the Comic Con perspective, you know when they the Justice League presentation in hall, you know every Saturday in the big hall of Comic Con is bookended by a big lavish presentation in the morning from Warner Brothers and a big lavish presentation at night by Marvel. And that's the bookends of like these are your comic book movies that are coming. Warner's had the actors from Justice League out there. I mean, understandably, Zack Snyder wasn't there because, you know, he's got personal things going on. Joss Whedon, who's taken over and hasn't missed a Comic-Con in 22 years, wasn't there. There were no creatives there. It was just like, here are your actors. And then they didn't announce anything about the future of the franchise. Meanwhile, Marvel, sitting high, is like, at the end of the night, is like, bam, we got this. Michelle Pfeiffer's in this now. Blah, blah, blah. We got this. You know, like, they're like, here's our future, and we're super confident. We're setting. Brie Larson's Captain Marvel's going to be in the 90s. We've got all these plans, and we're just on track. And Warner's is like, here are our five actors. Please ask them nice questions. Okay, we're done now. Like, that was <laughs> well, it, you know? I mean, and so Not to just- turn every conversation about Warner Brothers into a thing about how Marvel's so much better at what they're doing but if you think about the oscars and comic book movies marvel has done a really smart job just saying like hey we're gonna get a few oscary people to class this joint up we're gonna give them contained roles that really require some great acting we're not gonna necessarily pin the whole franchise on them and we're not gonna let them direct anything we'll get a director who knows how to make action movies but like mark ruffalo can play the hulk and, you know, Jeremy Renner can play Hawkeye, and if anybody's mm-hmm. ever heard of that character, like, that's not a huge risk. And Gwyneth Paltrow can play Pepper. You know what I mean? I, I just think, like, you can go – it's like you don't want a superhero movie a director necessarily directing your Oscar movie, but I'd much rather that than an Oscar-y director directing your superhero mm-hmm. movie. 
Right. Uh, well, yeah. They always I say mean, it's Chris easier Nolan, to go from genre to class than the other direction. In Warner Brothers' defense, they have the only person who has won an Oscar for a superhero movie at this point. Although that now feels like a hundred years ago that The Dark Knight and Nolan was in uh, Batman World. Oh yeah, that was a different era, wasn't it? <laughs> Wait, did that? Oh, it won an Oscar for Heath Ledger. You mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, sorry, yeah. not that not that The Dark yeah. Knight won, yeah. won an Oscar. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, Nolan, if Nolan had agreed to take on Batman as its shepherd, which I'm sure they asked him to do, uh, I don't know, we'd be in a really different situation. I think. They did. But li- they did like him. you were saying, Joanna, about the competing presentations at Comic-Con, I-, I mean, just from an outsider's perspective, just looking at Twitter when all these th- the trailers were dropping and stuff like that, you know, Justice League released a new trailer. It wasn't, you know, we'd seen footage of the film before, but, uh, you know, it was a new cut or it showed more things or whatever. And then Thor Ragnarok, tr- a new one came trailer came out for that hours later you know and i just feel like that thor overshadowed it you know so it's like this it, this thing constantly is having these mo- these moments of the, the justice league franchise where it just can't quite right get, you know. the thing that really strikes me i mean i you know i'm not like a detective i don't know exactly what's going on behind the scenes of like what determines who's in all h or not but i've been in two previous warner brothers panels and like they brought out their whole raft of directors that they were going to use for the justice league half of which are not employed by them anymore at one point you know like they, they're like these are our new directors and paraded them out and like you know half of them dropped off the projects um i remember um David Ayer was out there pumping up like Suicide Squad and he was like, fuck Marvel, fuck this. Like he was just like, he was making it this big like turf war and it was crazy and everyone was screaming and like it was this weird like cult of Warner's thing and cults of Justice League thing that was happening. I was freaked out. Um, and so they're, they're like relatively quiet appearance despite the huge Wonder Woman thing. And like the biggest news that came out of Warner Brothers was this like adorable fan reaction, like fan interaction that Gal Gadot had with like a young girl dressed as Wonder Woman. Like that was the Warner's news out of Comic-Con. And so like, I guess the bottom line is the more they can pivot on her, who's like (laughs) their best hope and not Ben Affleck, I guess, who, what did he do wrong? I don't know, but apparently something. Has, uh, Has Patty Jenkins signed her deal for Wonder Woman 2 yet? Um, I have no idea if she if that was like part of her original thing or not. Oh, um, I just found they, a Jezebel headline from yesterday that says it's pretty strange that Patty Jenkins is still not signed on for the Wonder Woman sequel. That uh, is pretty strange. Yeah, they got to get moving on that. The the thing that people want is more Wonder Woman. So uh, hopefully that happens soon. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye out for Justice League, which is coming out really soon, given that it's still filming, and see what happens to poor Ben Affleck. That does it for this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. And as always, find us on Apple Podcasts where you can rate and review us and tell other people to listen. As you heard, the Toronto lineup is out. The time is about to come for lots and lots of Oscar buzz, so it's a great time to join us. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, writing about things like the Toronto lineup and Comic-Con. We're all on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And individually, I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna? Joe wrote this. Richard? Rylos. And Mike had to leave, but he's at Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was produced by Jordan Bell and edited by Jennifer Lai, and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best possible outcome for the current spat between Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions goes to Mike Hogan. This this would make a good Ryan Murphy series. <laughs>